0: Jerry Collins, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Matt. Uh, we, were, we were digging in pretty good there, so I hope this works. I am actually do live off the grid, and I do use Wi-Fi, and it appears everyone as in this part of the country, as along with the rest of America, seems to just stream Netflix all day long, from what I can tell. So the and- bandwidth is a little iffy.
0: And you were, you were saying that your bandwidth actually has the COVID now, because uh, you, can't get, you can't get people actually working to come in and, and fix problems as they emerge. So, who knew?
1: No, 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 uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, people probably don't want to see my bed there either, and I, I noticed that, and um, my gym right behind me as well. I am self-contained. But yeah, no, it's, uh, Wi-Fi up here worked really well. Last year and years prior, it got better and better. And this year, it is awful, absolutely awful. There's part times when I can't even use the internet. It's so bad.
0: Yeah, well, we um, I feel like, and and we'll probably get into COVID because uh, uh, lockdowns are one of the reasons that we didn't get together at Freedom Fest in July because no. because the Nevada governor at the very last minute decided to shut down Freedom Fest as. Um, as governors are arbitrarily doing all over the country right now. I wonder I wonder if they imagine that people that spend two years planning a conference might not actually come back next year because of these arbit- arbitrary decisions, but that's a conversation for another day. But we had a plan that was completely disrupted. We were gonna get together live and in person to have this conversation, which you actually advise in your book, that, that face-to-face conversations are so much more meaningful than than spewing hate on Twitter, and maybe we'll get into that. But um, I, I feel like another principle in your book is is adapt, and we are adapting, and, and we're going to do this remotely, and we're gonna we're gonna hope that your that your Wi-Fi sustains itself through through this process. But um, when I was on your podcast, uh, I feel like we started the conversation with with a mutual passion that we have, and and fans of my show and and Free the People's Content know that I'm a big Rush fan and I'm specifically, I mean, I love the whole band and I love everything about the band, but I'm sp- specifically very influenced by Neil Peart's personal philosophy of life. I mean, he was very influenced by Ayn Rand, but he he really developed a, a uh, view of life, a, a joy for life and, and a um, sort of work ethic kind of thing that that was very influential on me. And I noticed that you dedicate your latest book, this is not new, when when did this book come out?
1: It is my newest. It just came out a month ago, but unfortunately due to some COVID issues and distribution issues, it didn't quite hit on Amazon when it was supposed to. But it is now officially there. Uh, It's always been on my website. but yeah, it probably came out. Where are we at? A little over a month ago, maybe a month and a half on my website. So it is new, newer. Okay. And I was writing it when Neil passed. That's yeah. what happened. I was literally writing that day when I got the news. So,
0: so sort of, uh, which which is funny since you actually quote Rush in the book. So, it was it was uh, it was an odd uh, and perhaps fortuitous timing that that happened. But the book is called. The simple life guides to small habits for big change. 14 powerful lessons for living a life of success and integrity. And and you know, before we get into rush, I I, I think the timing now is perhaps better than Freedom Fest because um, all these months later, I don't know how long it's been. I feel like it's been about 15 years. We've been in this lockdown. We were told that we had two weeks to to flatten the curve and now we're in this sort of um, authoritarian hellscape where my mayor in Washington DC, probably your governor, everybody who thinks that they have this sort of open-ended authority to tell us whether or not we can go outside, whether or not we have to wear a mask, can we go engage in peaceful commerce with our local coffee shop, all of these decisions that we um, naively perhaps took for granted are now being dictated by someone else, and I think that the the one of the mo- one of the most unreported aspects of this is how much this is screwing up people's lives, people's routines, people's careers, people's families, people's self-esteem, and you're reading about all these stories about about spiking depression and suicide. So it's a long way of saying I feel like this may be a good time for everyone to kind of reassess their lives and. And take it upon themselves to get their shit together because it's pretty damn clear right now that the government's not going to help us.
1: Well, what's that famous saying? Uh, we're the government, and we're here to help you. And it's never true. It's and I dealt with it. You know, working in it twenty years, and I left. Uh, you know, to start a new life. I'd had enough, and I kind of—I won't I say I was. What's that?
0: You have a spotted history.
1: A little bit. And uh, yeah, for people who don't know, I was uh, 20 years in military intelligence and as a federal agent in the government. So I I, I said when I left, I'd just seen too much. It was time to move on and go in a different, start a new chapter in my life. And I I tell famously, I I told my boss, I'm here to save my soul. And I can no longer tell the difference between the bosses and the criminals in the government anymore. It did not go over well. That was the turd in the punch bowl. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I did not uh, that, uh, yeah, I had, it was a good, it, but things happen for a reason. And for me, it was transitioning out because I grew up very rural, very poor, very few items, you know, for in life. But I was, I look back and I realized I was actually pretty happy overall. You know, as a kid, you're going, God, my parents suck. You know, we live in this beat up trailer, you know, our lives, you know, I, I'm eating these, you know, these cheap, Dollar pizzas and all, you know, you think of, you're just terrible, right? And later on in life, you start to realize, hey, that wasn't so bad. And I do have another saying, I always say, no matter how bad you think you have it, someone else somewhere has it much, much worse. So stop your bitching. And I take life that way. And it it took an attitude adjustment on my part to realize that, hey, I'm lucky. I live in the freest country in the world. I did nothing special to deserve it. I was just right place, right time. Here I am. So I need to take advantage of this opportunity and do the best that I possibly can. And with that, I rebooted my life and went back to a more rural lifestyle, built a house off the grid. This is my house off the grid. Um, I actually do do this stuff, which is pretty uh, interesting, I guess, in the self-help world. A lot of people, I call them the false prophets. They like to talk. But not do and tell you what to do, which is what our politicians do. Don't do as I say, or do as I do, or say do as I, or don't do as I do, or what is it? Oh God, don't do as I say, or whatever, whatever. I can't remember. It's too long. Uh, but do as you know, I, not as I do. There you go. God dang, this age uh, thing. I had a good 15 seconds up. while you were dying there to, to remember
0: it myself. So thank you for that. <laughs>
1: I was having I was having a John or Joe Biden moment. I almost went John by Joe Biden moment there. Uh, But I was able to recover. That's the key. I can still recover and have a have a somewhat conversation after the fact and not get angry and blow up. But, yeah, that's where it came from. And everything I did was this kind of natural evolution and progression in life that people were interested in what I was doing. I was a health guy. You know, I came out, started a health company. I was working with high-end athletes who wanted to go to major colleges. I was doing strength and conditioning primarily with offensive linemen uh, through an agent or a, a guy who played, was an all-pro for the Green Bay Packers in Southern California. I was teaching primal health. That's what I was doing. And this whole project kind of naturally progressed. I, I'd started earlier looking, but during the housing boom land, it's doing it again right now. That's the irony is I'm watching a repeat of what I went through in 2007, 2008 when I started looking for land in Montana. Right now, it's bonkers. It's Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. It's Crazyville out there right now. I just talked to a real estate agent yesterday. Um, you know, but it was this natural progression. I downsized, sold all of my belongings, started over, and just got down to the basics of life and said, what really makes me happy? I've been following this American dream, and all it's done is driven me into a ditch of unhappiness and debt. That's all it's done. And I went, this this can't be right, right? And so I said, "Long as you know, long as I'm not hurting people, who gives a shit? Why can't I live the life I want, you know? And that's where all this came from. And that book on integrity, the irony of that was, well, Dwell into Rush. I know it's got a long winded, but uh, I was writing it and I'd never used any Rush lyrics or anything in my books. Like I kept that out oh, personal to me. Rush is a personal thing with me. You know, it's a relationship that I developed throughout my life and all the influence people know. I'm a big Rush fan. A lot of my friends, you know, I'm a Rush geek. They know it. Um, but it was the first time I'd used lyrics in a book and literally I just finished putting it in, and a friend texted me and said, hey, did you hear Neil Peart died? And I went, what? And I went, what the? And I, I thought it was a joke. And so I did. I jumped on you know, the dummy net, and sure enough, it was true. And so that evolved the book, and as I was writing, I was realizing this was a book about integrity. Well, I'd used a quote from Free Will, and it was just amazing how all the pieces just flooded together. And so I went, you know, I didn't want to capitalize on it, so I made sure to let enough time go by, and I didn't market it as a book dedicated to Rush or any of that. Um, But, you know, today we need it, and everything I do is about helping people first. It is a business. I do need to make money. I do need to eat. My dogs need dog food. But the whole purpose of what I do now is about helping people and a journey to find your place in life based on my experiences. I'm no guru, I, I don't pretend to be. I'm just Gary, a dumb redneck from the middle of nowhere. If I can make it, anyone can make it, is my attitude.
0: You quote the, uh, the, the Rush song, Free Will, which is sort of a sort of an anthem for um, telling people to get their shit together, is the way that I read it when I was a kid. I think that, I think that album probably came out when I was uh, 14, 15 years old and there's this, there's this line, and I quote it to myself all the time, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. And, and to me, it's, it's, uh, it's everything about um, living a life of integrity because you, and you talk about this throughout the book, the, the, the questions that we deal with, the circumstances that we inherit, um, you can come up with an excuse or you can take that individual responsibility to get your own life together and move forward, and it's not easy. It's not going to be fun, but I, I look at the, the you know the politics of of blame today and the politics of shifting responsibility onto somebody else. And I don't want to make this a political program at all, but a lot of a lot of our our new progressive prophets are talking about dignity, and I'm sure you've seen this too. And they they seem to suggest that that we can sort of outsource that responsibility to find dignity to a politician, or a piece of legislation, or some sort of program that, that gives us financial support, um, healthcare, it goes on infinitely because there's all of these promises that, that someone else is gonna make us better and more whole, and, and it's, it's, such a, it's such a horrific lie, and I, I worry about young people that, that buy into that sort of thing.
1: Well, and it is, it's, a, it's almost a form of brainwashing in a way. And a lot of techniques that they use, you'll like this, man, I'm actually going to bring someone on my podcast, a good friend of mine, a PhD psychologist, and we're going to talk about the sociopathic and psych, psychopathic mind of, of criminals and politicians and how they interrelate. Your I, I was there. Yeah, it's going to be a good one. <laughs> and, but I was there. I tell people I stood right next to these knuckleheads. And first of all, if you think they're smarter than you, you're wrong. People confuse intelligence for a lack of moral code. You can sound really, really smart when you're playing a game the whole time, and you're just your whole game's manipulation. You can sound very bright. You get them out of that, and these are some of the dumbest, most broken people on the face of the planet. Not all of them. There's some good ones, you know, like Thomas Massey and and uh, you know. Uh, uh, Justin and uh, oh gosh, there's a couple out there and I, I, I there's people that are trying to make a difference on uh, Crenshaw out of Texas. Yes. But the problem is it's that tribal and that coalescing yes. that they get sucked into the beast, the swamp. I just interviewed the yes. guys who did the swamp. That will be another good one. <laughs> um, that on HBO it's a great documentary and it's uh, it's uh, Matt Gates, Uh, Thomas Massey and John Buck, all congressmen, and fascinating, right? But for people today, I always say, if you're waiting for someone to fix your problems, you're going to fail. And what we've taught is victimhood is okay. And we're seeing that right now. I think we're seeing that. I don't pick a party, I'm like you, I don't pick a party. I consider myself a bleeding heart libertarian. I always have, I always tell people my first vote as a young man was for Ross Perot. So you know where I stand. And I've always, since then, I've voted pinching my nose. So with that, we just have to look past politicians and big businesses, you know, the big businesses virtue signaling us, right? Telling us that we, you know, kneeling during the national anthem and, and, and believing that people are victims and there's this massive systemic racism in this country. Which, don't get me wrong, we have problems. I am not denying that. But I don't need Nike, who employs small children in sweatshop factories in China and all through Asia, to be telling me how I need to conduct my life. You know what I mean? How about you just shut up and make shoes and do it ethically? How about that? You know, I don't need you telling me how how I'm supposed to act and how I'm supposed to think. I think that's part of the problem today as well, is letting these outside influences come in. And that's what I mean. I call them false prophets. They're people who literally should shut their mouth. And, and and they're the people telling you to do things that they've never done, they will never do, and they they lack the the fortitude to even do it. They don't even have the the gumption to start to do it. Like, yeah. they're going to tell you how to do it. Yeah. They're going to tell you you need to do.
0: It. You know, you know it's a problem today. You know what's funny about that is that that we both would consider Neil Peart to be a bit of a a guru, a, a source of uh, um, guidance for us as we were growing up. We have very similar stories about getting into Russia at a very young age, and he, of course, uh, got a lot of his early ideas from Ayn Rand. And I, I considered Howard Rourke, who is a fictional character, who turns out to essentially be a version of Neil Peart. Neil Peart is a a drummer that's very focused on the integrity of his art, in the same way that that Ayn Rand's character Howard Rourke was. Um, but Neil would be deeply upset to learn that he was somehow our self-help guru because he didn't want to presume that he knew anything about how the rest of us should live our lives. And that's probably why those lessons are actually useful to us because he's, 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 uh, he's, he's laying out principles basically by, by living his life, by achieving the things that he wants to achieve in his life. and And we talked about this um, but, uh, on your podcast, but I'm I'm sort of um, since he just passed away, I'm sort of uh, fixated on that that last documentary they did about their final tour, Time Stand Still, And part of the story is how Neil Peart, who was who was up there at the time, I think he was 64, 65, something like that. And is very muscular drummer. He's very uh, perfectionist musician. He he can't imagine a world where he can't perform at 100% the same way that he did when he was 25. And he really struggled to get through that tour. He was, by the end of it, his hands and his feet are bleeding, he's in a tremendous amount of pain. And they ask him um, during the tour, why are you doing this? And he's like, I made a promise. I have a commitment. Yeah. And he, you know, he says it sort of like offhandedly like anyone would have a different thought about it, but but I think so many people facing far less um, challenge in their life would just say, you know what, this is too hard, I'm in too much pain. Uh, I think people will understand if I just quit. And that, that's, a, that's a toxic lesson if people think that that's an appropriate way to get through life because um, it's not other people that, that need to forgive you for that decision, It's, it's you're doing damage to yourself.
1: Well, and that's the thing I think that attracted us to Rush. And I, I, I'm like you, I, I want to say I knew of Rush when I was like eight or nine, but I didn't become a fan until I was around 10, 11. I was into music early on. I used to listen to Creedence Clearwater tapes that my dad had um, and Cream. And I was, from a very young kid, I was fascinated with music and loved music. And it was always rock. <laughs> you know, it was always the good stuff is what I like to call it. Not that other music's bad by any stretch. I just love music. And not knowing as a young kid Rush, because I was a big Kiss fan too. I mean, obviously, I had my Kiss Army poster on the wall next to my my uh, poster of uh, the Moon and the Apollo project. I think we all had those. And Rush to me once I, I got uh, became older and started to understand the lyrics a little better, because you could back then. You could literally read the lyrics right in front of you. They came in the tape or the album and it was an event. I remember every time you got a new album, and especially Rush cuz Rush was they put out a lot of music in a short period of time from like 78 to what, 84-ish, and it was and it was good. It wasn't just music they were putting out. It was a roll of music and albums they put out. That I don't think any band has ever come close to and ever will, period. Because it was so good in such a short period of time. And not only that, very different. There was transitions in it where the music changed fairly drastically. And for me, reading the lyrics and seeing their all of them, it wasn't just Neil, but I think Neil rubbed off on it. I think Alex and Getty had a really good work ethic anyway but when neil came in they were like we better step this up a notch this dude's crazy <laughs> this dude's good and i think with him and his his uh, appetite for learning and reading it just rubbed off on all of them and it's amazing that three guys could come together like that you know just by luck in a way and put together this band that even if you're not into their music i think you bring up a good point the music they put out in such a short period of time, not only that, but they were probably some of the best musicians on the planet in their mid-20s. Yeah. They put out music that guys in their 40s and 50s who had been musicians their entire life could not play. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the amount of work and time and effort they put in. And not only that, they're just good dudes.
0: They're yeah. just
1: nice guys. You know, And they don't take themselves too seriously. And the thing I liked – I don't know about you. I never went out of my way. I only went to the shows. I went to a lot of them. I got to go to two shows on the last tour, thankfully. Uh, I'd always – I'd been going to them for decades. I never missed a tour uh, except for when I was too young to go. But that – it was one of those where – You just admired them, but you didn't want to get too close. My attitude, I I never bought any special tickets to get front row. I never did a backstage thing. I never went out of my way to contact them. I just didn't do that. I talked to Donna Halper here and there, and I interviewed her for my podcast because she is given credit for finding Rush and developing them in the U.S. when she was a, a disc jockey in Cleveland. But other than that, I was just happy for them being around, and I think that's what they taught me. Is don't don't put people in an idle kind of space because you may be disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> More likely, you will be, and that they the attitude: Hey, I'm just a normal guy trying to do my best and be a good human being. That's all I'm trying to do. Yeah. And I think Neil was very uncomfortable with people treating him differently. Yeah. Very uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, and he, he 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 wrote about that in in Limelight, where he was sort of horrified that he had become this this. Influence on people's lives, uh, maybe more than than he was comfortable with, you know. I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking back to something you said early. Um, you know, you were sort of empty, emptying some of the skeletons out of your closet, having worked for uh, government intelligence, and and you also worked for the FDA, as
1: I recall, right? At the very end, I call that the frying pan to the fire. Yeah.
0: Yes. And and I'm thinking about this in the context of of one of the things that that Neil. Taught me as a kid, and I just I just made a video about this. But one of the things he taught me was was how to say no, and and there's this there's this famous story in Rush's career. Um, their 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 tour for *Caress of Steel*, their third album was a disaster, and nobody liked the album, and particularly the record company didn't like the album, so they didn't promote it. And word came down from from the bosses that the next album has to be more like that first album that that got FM radio play, we need things that we can sell, we need something that's easy for people to assess and understand. And instead they made the, the opus that turned me on to Ayn Rand called 2112. And they did it knowing full well that it was probably going to end their career. So they were willing to walk away from what, for particularly at the time, but always like to, to have a successful uh, music career is an amazingly rare thing to do, uh, but they were willing to walk away from it because they weren't willing to compromise their artistic integrity just to have a job and and you did that when you work for the government um, when i was when I was a younger man and I think very much influenced by by rand and and Peart, um, I stepped away from some what other people would view as very prestigious Washington jobs. I won't empty my closet as much as I'm asking you to empty yours, but, oh, but, no, but, Matt, come, come on. Well, I, you know, I work, I, I work for the government too. I, I worked on Capitol Next, Hill, you know, and Matt, be careful. Yeah, one, we're going to empty that closet. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do that on your show. But uh, the 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 reason that I think as a libertarian, I've survived in Washington D.C is that I've been willing to say no. And it's, it's very unpopular and it, it can cost you some, some short-term losses if you think that, that climbing the typical career ladder is the thing that you wanna do. Um, but in terms of your your personal dignity and happiness, it's, it's essential. If you don't do it, well- you're, you're gonna suffer.
1: Well, and that's what they taught me. And I think both of us realized that we didn't realize until Neil had passed away how big of an influence they had on me as a human. You know, I think a lot of us kind of did this introspection and went, you know, I didn't realize it until he passed. and went, wow, that band developed me as a human being, which is pretty strange. (laughs) You know, I'm glad Van Halen and Motley Crue didn't do that to me because that could have been a disaster. I love them both, too and I may have dabbled in some of that lifestyle and it wasn't good, but you're right. And that's what I said when I left the government and we both know as well that doing the right thing is hard. It's really hard. It takes a lot more effort and your success is not going to be overnight. You know, it's it's that trudging. I say I'm a, I'm a overnight success that took a decade you know, after I left the government and I'm still building and trying to make it better. But what I learned when I decided to do the book series, especially the Simple Life book series and the influence they had was I said, I'm gonna do it my way. I didn't go out and hire a research firm or go dig on Google and see what was trending. I said, what were the books I want I would have wanted and I needed when I was in my teenage formative years that would have drastically changed my life? You know, and I look at people like Stephen Pressfield and The War of Art, which I love. Uh, he's been a, a super nice guy to me. I don't know him personally. We've been emailing for a decade. He helped me out. He always responds to my emails. I learned from him as well. Uh, you know, some of those influences. And Neil, Neil was a big influence on me on writing because I am not a writer. I did not go to school for it. I am terrible with English. I'm a math guy. So I had to learn this, and I went, well, I can either play the game, write like everyone else, go get a editor hire a marketing guy that's going to tell me what's going to sell or I just go with my heart and I'm going to write the things I want to write in my style and let it let let the chips fall where they may and see what happens and I did that with the simple life series this thing is a big experiment because I said I'm just going to write the books I want to write that I think people need and that I needed 30 years 40 years ago and that's what I did and uh, I think people appreciate the honesty that I got nothing to hide you know and I think when you live your life that way, and, you know, I don't, I'm a private guy though, too. People understand that as well. And luckily my, you know, my listeners and, and my customers understand that, Hey, Gary's living a life, you know, don't, don't bug me all the time. I answer all my emails. I had a couple this morning, good ones. Uh, you know, I always try to be available. And I learned that from other people because Neil did that, you know, for his friends and people he knew, he, he always was courteous with interviews and everything, even though he hated doing them especially later on. But I've noticed that if you live your life that way and you just go out there and make it happen, shit will work out. You know, it, it, what's uh, the, the, from subdivisions, you know, the dreamer, the dreamer, uh, dreamer uh, oh gosh, now I can't even remember that, but the dreamer is so alone today. But it's true that subdivisions had a big impact on me too, The the lyrics to that, that even then in the eighties, you know, everything was a subdivision. We were being fit and in boxes. We were told we must do this in order to be happy. And it's pretty interesting that that Neil had already figured that out. <laughs> he was way ahead of his time. You know, he wrote that he probably wrote the lyrics in the late seventies or early eighties.
0: Well, he he grew up and yeah. he grew up in that world. And never, never fit in. I, I found these lyrics um, that you just butchered, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna give them a reading. Just
1: to... and I did. I butchered them tremendously. Yeah.
0: Growing up, it all seemed so one-sided. Opinions all provided. The future predecided, detached and subdivided, in the mass production zone. Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit so alone. And he's describing himself, but he's, he's basically describing anybody that doesn't want to just accept the rules as they are and the institutions as they are. and, and it, it reminds me a little bit. We always quote Hayek on my show. I apologize in advance for that, but oh, there's this, there's this great uh, there's this great uh, quote somewhere in the constitution of Liberty and, and you butchered Neil, so I'm going to butcher Hayek, but he, he says something to the effect of in order to break a rule, you have to follow a hundred rules. And he's not talking about laws, he's talking about the, the rules that have evolved spontaneously through humans interacting. Um, so you, you have to, you know, you, you grow up in a world that's structured like that, but if you, want, if you want to break rules, you at least need to know how that works and, and what you're trying to do to, to change the system. It can't, it can't be willy-nilly, you, have to, you actually have to stick at it. And that's, that's one of the core principles of your, of your book. Is this? There's no quick fixes. There's no easy outs. Um, there's no silver bullets that some flashy guru is going to give you. It's like it's a grind. Life is a grind. And if, particularly if you want to buck the system, if you want to break the rules, you better be prepared for a lot of blowback. You better be prepared um, for other people not wanting to help you because you're you're sort of undermining the status quo.
1: Well. When I left the government, I started on this adventure, and I sold my house and I moved into a small little cottage. It was like 475 square feet. Um, you know, I got rid of all my debts and lost a lot of money on my house. I lost lost co- close to a quarter of a million dollars cash because I did I did everything right. I've never missed a payment in my life. I've always been had a 800 credit score. I was always the guy that played by the rules. I did everything exactly how I was told. And when I left that and started and went on this adventure, and I I had some terrible health problems, too. I had to get my spine fused and multiple surgeries and just had to go through this whole metamorphosis of reevaluating my place in life. And when I did that and started to venture out of of minimalist type of lifestyle, living debt-free, living on my terms, and I talk about this, too, of being overwhelmed by freedom, which was I mean a life altering experience. It freaked me out. I remember I sold my house, I'd moved into this cottage, I'd sold almost all my belongings, all the crap that I didn't need. And I'm not saying, st- you know, I kept all my tools, my mountain bikes, my road bike, my dogs, You know, the things I needed, the things that were important. But I remembered sitting at my desk and I was starting my business and I went, I, I, I almost had a panic attack because I realized I could do whatever I wanted. Nothing was holding me back, and I was overwhelmed with the freedom, and it shocked me. I went, this is how far I was out of the proper mindset of living my own life, that actually living free freaked me out. What the hell? How did I get there? I think that's what most Americans are in today. And when I started this journey and bought the land and said, told my friends, hey, I'm going to I'm going to live off the grid, and uh, I went through this whole metamorphosis. They, I had friends go, hey, do you need help, like psychological help? They were dead serious. They were all, you know, uh, are you okay? Is everything, are you doing all right? And they were, you know, I went, hey, no, I'm fine. Everything's good. Let's fast forward to over a decade. Now they're asking me for advice how to live the life I'm living right now. Yeah. That, that is pretty interesting.
0: It's hard. I mean, it's hard to imagine... Um, if if you grow up in a structured world, and and this, this applies to my libertarianism as well. If you're if you're used to the government doing things for you, it might be difficult to imagine another way of doing things. And you just sometimes um, you know in in my case, sometimes when I when I can't figure out exactly where I'm going, I just I just jump with with a certain amount of faith that that I've been able to to land on my feet and and whatever's around the corner is gonna be interesting, but sometimes you just have to, you have to break it to get out of it. Um, and I, th- I think most Americans now, that we're so used to food being on the table and all of our needs taken care of that, that we can't even imagine that these, these are special things that don't just happen. They happen because a lot of people bust their asses and, and make it happen. And I, I worry about that. Like we don't appreciate that—that—that that, that poverty is the natural state of, of the world. It's not the opposite.
1: Well, and and, and be, uh, poverty is relative. It, it, it just and subjective. It depends what your idea of that. And I I talk about this a lot. That in America, our poorest are considered some of the richest people in the world. Yeah. And we have to get over this attitude. And I talk about this a lot too. We don't have an earning problem in this country. And don't get me wrong; everyone should should aspire to make more money and have more freedom. Money equals freedom, but greed is bad. There's a fine line between that 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 kind of going into. I don't know why you need to have 150, 200 billion dollars. I don't understand that. To me, I can't register that in my brain. And and you know how we group in tribes, and that that by that would not have been. Uh, acceptable behavior of hoarding in a tribe it was a community everything was shared well today it's not that way but understanding that hey you you have the resources to live the life you want you just need to reallocate the things you're doing do you know change the things you can change ignore the rest (laughs) you know focus on the things that matter what matters you know, does the fact that your your friend on so on Facebook didn't invite you to their barbecue last week and you lost your shit and it ruined and blew up your whole weekend? Is that important? No. No, that doesn't mean anything. Focus on the things that you can change. Are you are you, if you're in debt, what can you do to get out of debt? You know the the three, and I talk about a little bit in, th- in that book, but I brought it up uh, later as I was developing the theory and what the simple life is all about. I do in live events. It's, I call it the three-legged stool of the simple life. Super basic, but it is highly impactful. The first leg is optimal health. Everything starts with your health. And we're seeing an epidemic in this country, and I'm not talking COVID. I'm talking obesity and poor health in this country. We are the most unhealthiest country in the world by far. We spend the most money on healthcare by far. It is not working. There is no money in healthy people. I worked inside it. Trust me, I know this. I mean, think of it this way. The the main, the main goal of the pharmaceutical and the medical industry, I like to call it the, the U.S. medical industrial complex today, is not to the fiduciary responsibility to the stockholder, and it's a legally binding fact. They cannot put the patient first. The stockholder comes first. What the hell does that mean in the health world? That makes absolutely no sense. The patient care should come first, period. It doesn't. It's money. So that's a problem. So you need to take control of your health. I'm a health guy. I preach that. The second leg is financial freedom by being debt free. If you're debt free, and I know this firsthand, I actually do it. I have been for over a decade. I do leverage money here and there. Uh, your life will drastically change. You can survive. I can survive off minimum wage, no problem. And the the effect that has upon your health and your well-being is amazing. I sleep like a baby every night because I I don't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I don't have to worry about paying my bills. I own my house. I don't have payments. I own my car. I own my RV. I own my properties. I don't pay. I don't have loan payments. Loan payments are front loaded. I talked about that in the simple life guide to financial freedom, how our loan and financial system works to keep you in debt the rest of your life. Then the third and final one is life purpose. If you don't have purpose, your time on this planet is going to be pretty miserable. And I I feel today that a lot of Americans are just, are just floundering around without purpose. I have found my purpose. I did not force it. It found me. That's the thing about purpose. If you put helping people and being a better person and, and spending your time on this planet, doing the best you can, your purpose will find you. It will. And, and a lot of that… Because people always go, well, I can't eat purpose. I go, I get that. You can't pay your bills and eat purpose. But I have I have taught so many people how to turn their purpose, their life purpose, into an income stream. It's not that hard. It's just most people don't want to do the work. They want someone to tell them what to do, where to show up, and pay them for it. That's where we're at. Well, that's not going to work. You're, you're not going to be fulfilled. Um, but I mean, you have talked about it, Matt, with uh, the three-legged stool. It directly relates to freedom.
0: Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this. I um, actually, actually having a conversation with George Will about a year ago on my show. And there's a, there's a, it's not, nothing with George Will is throwaway, but there's a, there's a one-page conversation um, that, and I, I can't actually even remember what triggered this thought in my mind, but I, I have this half-baked theory that one of the reasons that, that we lack purpose, and going back to this, this quest for, for dignity and meaning in life, one of the reasons we lack that is that we don't actually have to work that hard to meet our basic survival needs anymore. As you point out, we're the, we're the wealthiest country in the world uh, we're the most obese country in the world, and you and you talk about that, and I wonder if if we're we're so spoiled that that we we no longer have meaning because there there certainly was a time in human existence where where killing enough food for dinner was the definition of meaning because you're going to get to live to to fight another day. Did you buy that, or is that half baked?
1: no i i agree with that and it's been proven through history right uh there's two things that humans are wired for two two things survival and reproduction and in order to do either one of those you can't be lazy (laughs) you can't reproduce if you can't survive you know and you can't survive if you're not reproducing so with that i i teach this a lot too is that action is the pudding of life why wouldn't you want to eat pudding Talking about things is great. I'm an action guy. I'm a get my hands dirty guy. Matter of fact, my hands are sore and swollen and I've got blisters. I put in my wind turbine over the last month. I poured 60, you know, used 60 bags of concrete. I hand mixed all of it in a wheelbarrow because I'm a knucklehead, Um, but you know, I like to teach and I never looked up one YouTube video how to do it (laughs) because I want to learn. I want to figure it out. I want to make my own mistakes. And I'm not saying don't just make mistakes to make mistakes. Um, but also, I have enough knowledge how to do it. I wanted just to figure out a different way to do it. I want to see to test myself. But I think that's right. You know, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We have fulfilled those. And the problem is, with that, what's the next step? Well, we're not taking a next step anymore. We're just, we're fat, stupid, and, and, and lazy now. And... and that's a problem. And that's been the, the end of every modern civilization in history, history repeats itself. We know this, you know, and we're at a point where I tell people that just because technology and, and we have all these things that make our life easier, doesn't mean you don't need to put in the work. And, uh, just like my puppy's putting in the work right now to bug me. Uh, but with that, you know i always say you have to keep challenging yourself keep challenging keep doing things that are going to test you and and obviously we're lear- we're wired for a couple other things and that's curiosity and learning and what does curiosity and learning do well it's part of survival it's part of reproduction again they all funnel back in and i agree i totally agree with that i think it is it's just we've of understanding the human condition and the human condition is a lot of suffering and suffering is where a lot of learning and lessons come from you know you learn far less from success than you do by failure it's just a fact
0: yeah we've definitely forgotten that and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pop around your book a little bit because I'm gonna I'm gonna ask people we're not gonna go through it systematically because we believe that markets work and if you really are interested, you should go buy this book. But but I, I love the the first habit. Stop whining and blaming others. And it gets it gets to everything we're just talking about. Why can't we whine?
1: Well, and don't get me wrong, I, I used to call it when I was a I, I've been a class A whiner. I've been a really good one. And I used to use the excuse, oh, it's just constructive criticism. <laughs> I used I renamed it. I renamed whining to placate myself, which is never good. You never want to do that. Uh, you know, and I catch myself whining and because what whining does is it's wasted energy, right? It's, it's, it gets to the point where all you do is whine. You know, all you do is look around for the problem when you should be looking in the mirror because it's staring you straight back in the face. And again, we're, we're lucky. We're in the, the, the best place, the freest country in the world. Everyone should be prospering in this country. Like I said, there's a whole lot of problems. We've got issues. Our criminal justice system is broken. I know that firsthand. You know, our government, federal government's broken. A lot of our local governments are broken. But here's where it all starts. I always tell people this. Stop bitching about all the things that are around you that are wrong until you fix yourself. I consider that the ground like the ground zero of what I teach, fix yourself before you start complaining and telling other people and other things they need to fix themselves. You need to start with you. That's where it starts. Because if all of us do this, we can solve these problems, right? But when you're just pointing fingers all the time and, and telling everyone else they're screwed up, when you're 250 pounds, uh, you're miserable, you're on multiple you know, psychotropic medications, and you're just, you know, bumbling through life. That doesn't work. You got to fix yourself first. You need to get your shit in order. And I'm more of a go. Uh, I, I come across low breaks. If I know this. I'm a more sharp edged guy. But I've learned it by doing. You know, uh, I was that guy that I, I've done it too. I've said, oh, "My life sucks." You know, well, how did it get this way? What did everyone's against me? You know, the man's putting me down. No, I mean, don't get me wrong. Life is unfair, but it all, bo- all boiled down to me and my choices. Free will. I'm in charge of my destiny. I have free will. There's a lot of places in this world where people do not have free will. We're lucky.
0: So, so give me, um, I'm sure you've written about this and and I think I have a general idea of what your answer is going to be, but give me your general view on why America is so obese and, and why things like type two diabetes are skyrocketing. What, what's your general philosophy on, on nutrition?
1: Oh boy. That that's a, that's an open ended one right there. The biggest one though, was, and that's why I always use, <laughs> all abbreviated, <laughs> even though I'm terrible at that, I can go on tangents. Uh, Again, the statement always say, "There's no money in healthy people." Our medical system, and our health system, and our food industry today, as would you talked to Thomas Massey and Joe, Joe Salton about it, it's based upon it's based upon money. It's based upon greed. I mean, why local? When you come to our an economy, a strong economy, a strong economy is based on small businesses and local economies. That's where it works because that money stays within the communities. When you have Walmarts and big stores and big institutions, that money flows from you in that in that community out into headquarters. When you're a local business, a local farmer, it all flows and stays within the community. You know, it, it boosts your acu- community. It makes your community richer, more vibrant, you know, econ- economically more stable. And I know you're an economist. Um, uh, but- For that, you have to look at it as the basics. Our problem is we have let the system take over, and that's why I teach the three-legged stool. uh, Those are the three things we have allowed the government to take away from us that we can willingly take back. And those are the three things that I think are eroding most of our freedoms, individual freedom today. With health, it comes down to this. It's on. It's no one else's fault. Hey, people have health conditions, but I'll tell you right now, I've been doing this for a long time. If there's one place people are going to lie to me in anything I do in my business, it's health. They always lie to me. Oh, I don't eat like that. Yes, they do, and it's usually worse. Oh, I'm not like most Americans. Yes, you are. (laughs) And for most people, it's just realizing that you need to rethink health. And I always say... They go, it's so complicated. You know, there's so many, you know, gizmos and exercises and this and that. And I need to take this pill and this protein powder. I go, put yourself out back in nature. What would you have access to? What would you survive off of? That's it. And they go, it can't be that simple. I go, you do realize humans are animals. We, we are actually from stardust. That's where all of us came from. All these elements... And came and bombarded our planet where some little rock floating around in some infinite simulation universe, we don't even know. But we do know that the human and all organisms came from the elements of the dirt and the planet. What do you think? Why do you think Cheetos are going to kill you? <laughs> Pretty basic. You know, I, I can't make it any more basic than I wrote. I have a health book. I talk about health a lot. But I would say just taking responsibility for your health is the biggest part so I understand that it it boils
0: down to your choices. So I spent the uh, I got to spend a weekend actually this past weekend with Joel Salatin, at his farm in in Western Virginia, Polyface Farm. Such a mm-hmm. cool place. He's like a he's like a farmer philosopher more than more than anything else. But when he was on my show, he said something that that he he corrected me on something that that was was profound the way that he was thinking about it. And it goes back to to something you were just talking about, because when I first critiqued the the potential lockdowns under COVID, I was I was thinking about the incredibly complex distribution and production of food that makes sure that 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 people are fed. And he's like, it's not complex; it's simple. And he's saying it's and he's saying it's simple in, in in terms of it being very top down very one-size-fits-all very regulated and that's why they were calling the particularly when it came to processing of, of, of meat very fragile very brittle and and that was interesting to me because I it strikes me that that these same forces you, you, you talked about the uh, uh, health industrial complex I mean there's a food industrial complex too and it's Absolutely. it's it's corrupting of of the market process, which, which should always be bottom up and infinitely complex and and more about that, that face-to-face um, community-based relationship thing that, that you talk about in habit number two. Do you see that nice segue there? Habit number two, don't be an asshole. Um, I, I love this rule, I, there's, uh, there's, there's a lot of truth in that and, and we should all aspire not to be assholes even though at times we, we can all be that way. But what's particularly interesting to me is your your rant about how social media makes us all into assholes um, because, mm-hmm. because we don't know who we're yelling at. And you wouldn't do that if you were actually hanging out with them.
1: Well, it's human, human communication through proxy, right? You're going through this weird filter that humans, are not geared or wired to. We're geared for face-to-face interaction. Matter of fact, most of our communication is not verbal when we're one-on-one. It's actually physical. It's physical cues that you're watching. You know, if I'm if I'm saying something that is hurtful to you, I'm going to see the expression in your face. I'm going to see it in your body language. And I, you know, being a former federal, I've done thousands of interrogations. <laughs> so there's one thing I know is interaction between humans, and I'm I'm pretty good at you know, figuring out cues when someone's lying, when someone's uncomfortable with that social media, it also takes away the consequences. And I think that's the biggest aspect of it. You know, when we were growing up, you know, I, I had an episode about this where I talked to a former cop about use of force. We're good friends. Um, only episode I think I've heard where it's done right. Um, that we talked about from that perspective of though, too, that your words have consequences. So if you're acting like a jackass in person and you're insulting someone and you're telling them they're stupid, they're wrong, there's a good chance you're going to get punched in the face at some point. There's going to be a negative reaction, right? Well, we've removed that. So that allows you to talk you know, uninhibited and say things that you would never say in person. So I think social media has just caused a lot of turmoil. And not only that, but we also know the Chinese and Russians are, you know, have infiltrated social media to cause all kinds of havoc. We know that algorithms are based upon creating drama because drama creates more interaction, negative interaction. I have a lot of problems with the the owners of these social media companies and hey, I'm on them. I'm on Twitter. I use it as a tool though. I, I'm shocked I haven't been banned or booted off yet. Just give it enough time. It will happen. Yeah, it's coming. Um, it's coming. And, and But I tell people also, I, that's why I derived my business by word of mouth and doing interviews. I've been doing podcast interviews for almost a decade. And I built it all upon not relying on social media. And people who were entrepreneurs who I've known were social media darlings, they they're back to work. They had to go get jobs. And I've always said that social media can be used as a tool but you have to be really, really careful with it. And I'm a big fan of human interaction. And even though we do this, hey, I have to do my podcast remotely as well. But my goal eventually is, like you do a lot of your interviews, is in person. I want to build a studio. I want to be able to bring people in and have these one-on-one conversations face-to-face. Because you just learn so much more about people that way. And I, I try not to have close friends who I have not met in person. It's just kind of a rule, but that not saying, you know, I do have people I've never met in person who I consider myself very close to, but we also talk on the phone, yeah. that crazy thing. It's not texting and, you know, uh, uh, instant messaging or messaging on Twitter or what we don't, you know, I talk to them on the phone. We have real conversations or Skype or, you know, Zoom so we can see each other. So I used
0: to be, I used to be quite romantic, and you can read about it in my last book. I was quite romantic about the power of not so much social media, but social media was very much the the emerging um, thing that we were all romantic about at the time. But the 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 democratization that technology provides for the pursuit of knowledge like you don't need you don't need access to a library, you don't need access to a bookstore. And by the way, when I was a kid, my libraries and bookstores didn't have the books I wanted to read, so there were barriers to entry to finding things. And I I saw the upside of someone like Ron Paul quoting this obscure Austrian economist, Ludwig von Mises, and an entire generation of young people Googling that shit and saying, This guy's pretty cool. I'm gonna read him. And so there was that there was that 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 side of it, and I still think that side is there, but I didn't anticipate the the manipulation and the, the, the tribalism that is very much the cesspool of, of modern social media. So I I take your critique at heart because I think it's I think it's a real problem. I think it's I think it's creating a lot of a lot of anger and a lot of hate and and anger and hate is uh, is leads to some really bad stuff in society.
1: It does, and I l- use Twitter a little differently, and I had a friend, uh, a common friend we have, uh, uh, Michael Ostrolink. He, he conned me into getting back on Twitter because I hadn't, I, I hadn't used social media. I stopped using Facebook years ago. I never used it personally very much, period. I hated it. I tell people that what got me into Facebook, which wasn't my personal account, is that's how I found uh, suspects and criminals. <laughs> I used to use MySpace and Facebook because they all had accounts. I could find them. If I couldn't find them through databases.
0: By the, by the oh, way, so half of my staff is deleting their accounts as you say that because they didn't realize uh, that that was a thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was many things we did. I recommend people read Edward Snowden's book because I, I laugh. I was the end user of what Edward Snowden created. I was a spook. I was a cryptologist and a intelligence officer. So I used a lot of the technology he talks about. Um, trust me platforms your data is being mined 24 7 so i'll just say that um but yeah it's it's one of those things i never bought into it but i think i've just i'm wired a little differently i i just i didn't get it i'm all why do i need these random friends and also i grew up in a, a very small town and to this day i have friends best friends that we were babysat together we grew up in this little town hard times we played sports together I spent far more hours with these guys growing up and girls than I did with my family. It was just the way it was. We were latchkey kids. I was on my own a lot. I grew up in a town 20, 25 miles away from my town of 1,800 people. The town I lived in was 50 people. One of them was 100. We had these two little towns. So my friends and all that became very close-knit over life and you know spending days I mean, I literally spent days spending nights over their house. I wouldn't see my family for two or three days. (laughs) I mean, you know, until my mom picked me up in town and it was just a different deal. So I think my relationships and friendships were just very different and very close knit growing up that I didn't get the gist of randomness of just random people. And all of a sudden you're a friend with someone from New Jersey, even though I live in California and I don't know, even know who you are. You just have a profile that could be totally bullshit. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. It was just always strange to me to try and formulate how that works. I just didn't get it. I think
0: you're right. it's it's how you use it, and you I think you can use these things in a in a productive and responsible way. I mean, I have a I have a big fan page and and I probably know five percent of those people if I'm lucky. But my personal page, I've tried to only become friends with people that I've met and people that I thought were good people but but I speak um, at least when it's legal when it becomes legal again to have fun I speak all over the world and I meet really cool people that are animated by the same ideas we're talking about right now and I, I find it I, I think that's great to sort of curate a community on, on Facebook and and have uh, have conversations and stay connected and and ostensibly, that's what it was originally for. But, but so much today, it's about uh, how many people liked my post, or, or how many friends can I acquire? And they're not friends; they're just they're just random people. And you know, they might be Russian hookers. You don't know. And not that there's anything wrong with Russian hookers, but that's a subject for another podcast. Um, um, come on,
1: that's my two former ex-wives. It's a very good profession. <laughs> No, I, I'm with you. And I don't, and I, that's how I look at it. But I always I look at it where it derived from. And as a guy that, you know, I dug, a, I was in this stuff, and uh, these guys didn't create this to benefit humankind. They, the, if you look in the background of all, you know, Dorsey, uh, Zuckerberg, they were data crunchers. These guys were data guys. They understood that data was king and it was coming. And so they knew that. Because if the, my attitude, I've always said this, that if these guys truly wanted it to benefit humankind, they wouldn't be billionaires. And I'm not against, don't take that as I'm against capitalism or anything like that. I'm a true capitalist for sure. But if they were really for the benefit of humankind, these, their businesses wouldn't be built the way they're built. It would be take on a totally different structure, totally different meaning. None of your data would be mined at all it would be a nonprofit for most business. I mean, the ads would work differently. So you just have to be careful with that stuff. And, and I don't know about you, but for me, I, I ask my friends how they get, like I'll watch their phone. They're getting bombarded. Like I don't have any social media apps on my phone or anything. I get far less advertising and spam. I mean, far less than they do. They get pounded nonstop. And it's because I'm not in the data. I don't have all those data points out there. They're out there, but they're not getting them. They're in different places. Um, but that's what I talk about small business too and the benefits of a small business. I don't data mine people, you know, I don't have the ability to automate. My main resource is human capital, you know, to this day. I use technology, but my main people, main thing I employ is humans. <laughs> you know, I can't get away from that. And then you have to look at it in a big picture. I know I went off on a little tangent there, but it all comes full circle again. That be careful with technology technology can either hurt you or help you it depends how you use it i give an example in uh, my decluttering book decluttering your life about how most people have at least one smartphone um you know they have a tablet they have a health tracker they have a laptop they have a desktop you know they have a gaming device and I go, this is the average person. And I laugh. I go, you do realize I run my entire business with a laptop and a, and a smartphone. Like a major business. I, I run the whole thing off that. Why do you need all these devices? Why do you need all these social media accounts? If you're just an everyday person, you don't. The simple answer is you don't.
0: Okay, nice, uh, nice way to close out. Um, if, we, if we want to learn more about the simple life, because I, f- I feel like we could spend another six hours just going through this book. But uh, tell us tell us how to get more Simple Life and more Gary Collins.
1: The Simple Life Now.com. Don't go to The Simple Life. Uh, I think that takes you to Nicole Ritchie and Paris Hilton's website. I'm not real sure. But go there. I sell all my books on my website. Everything's there. My podcast, Your Better Life, which this guy, Matt Kibbe, has been a guest on. It- It, you'll find everything I do there. And I really appreciate if people buy my books there and, and support support me there because that way it allows me to pour more money to create more books and more products to help people.
0: Okay, Gary, uh, thanks a lot for doing this. And, and next time we'll schedule six hours so we can really dig deep.
1: <laughs> thanks a lot, Matt. I appreciate it. Take it easy.
0: Thanks for listening to Kibbe on Liberty. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Your ratings will help us reach even more people with our mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.